What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today a fantastic guest and new to the show, Dr. Yasmin Beg, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Northwestern and the Nora Medical Director for Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Nora, for those who may not know, is non-OR anesthesia. And indeed, since Yasmin is an expert in this area, we are going to talk about non-OR anesthesia and how it differs from traditional OR anesthesia. So it's really a pleasure to have her on the show. Yasmin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure. And I should say that this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. Great website with all kinds of great content. You should check it out. And also, I think I mentioned before that their um, podcast, The Etherist, is actually pretty interesting. And the new episode, uh, I mean, the new season that's out covers the future of the kind of staffing and uh, personnel crisis in anesthesiology. So it's pretty interesting, and I would check it out. So why don't I start by just asking you to share with the audience a little bit about how you developed an interest in this area specifically. Um, was it during training? Was it after training? And uh, how'd that come about? Sure. So it's a, a little bit of an interesting path that I took. Um, so I'm actually Canadian. And when I came to the U.S. for residency, I had to start a little bit off cycle because my immigration paperwork just took a little bit longer than anyone anticipated. So consequently, I um, finished my anesthesia training very early on in 2009. So I, I finished off cycle as well. And due to um, those circumstances combined with a few others, I just was, decided to go out into private practice right away. Um, so I ended up at a moderately large-sized community hospital, which had a fair number of ORs. It was an MD-only practice, so we did our own our own cases. And the one thing I noticed right away was that there was this huge lateral spread of anesthesia outside of the operating room. Um, this hospital, they back then would run seven to eight anesthesia-supported GI rooms daily. 
And I used to joke in that first year that I was really doing an, a GI anesthesia fellowship that year. Um, there was just so much that we were doing offsite. So I was really, really grateful that I had some Nora exposure back in residency. I mean, back then it was only just a handful of cases here or there, either in interventional radiology, maybe a couple in GI. Um, you know, we did a little bit more in pediatrics in terms of pediatric MRIs, but so really that was about it. But I was really so grateful that I even had that little bit of background because it really helped prepare me for what I was seeing in the real world when I went out there. So that's kind of where the interest stemmed from. And obviously being back in academics now, um, you know, NORAS is continuing to grow. So there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done. And then we're working a lot over there as well. Awesome. And how did that trans? How long were you in private practice before you um, came back to academics? I was in private practice for six years, um, and I've been in academics now for just slightly over five. So I'm approaching that halfway mark where I will have been in academics just as long as in private practice. Great. And so you, that's actually really interesting because you have the, and we should talk about this later too, the comparison between, and, and maybe there's not much of a difference, but it'd be interesting to hear uh, when we get to talking about the specifics of what, if any, differences you noticed between doing Nora in the uh, private practice setting versus the academic setting. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I felt like we, I, I was, I almost felt like my private practice job position trained me um, for my present Nora director role because we just did so much. And tell me a little, I guess, since we're on the topic, tell me a little about that. What, what, in what way do you feel just in terms of getting the practice in private practice or was there, were there things in private practice that you don't think you would have gotten doing it in, in academics? You know, I felt, um, back then in 2009, um, when I left, I, I trained at Northwestern as well. When I left Northwestern, um, we weren't doing as much in terms of Nora in, in, for example, the GI lab. And whenever we did do GI ERCP type cases, it was always a general anesthetic. When I went out to private practice, we were doing a lot of max for a lot of these cases. Um, and initially, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because that wasn't what I was used to. And, and Nora itself is uncomfortable to begin with. Um, so there was a little bit of a learning curve. You know, I learned from a lot of my colleagues and in, in basically seeing what they were doing and how they were doing it. And then I developed my own comfort level. Um, you know, being back in academics now and now, you know, that it's 2020 and no longer 2009, um, our GI Center has really exponentially grown in the last five years. And we did our own kind of internal data review and close to... 90% of our cases we're doing max now for our GI center, which is not the norm for an academic center at all. So I think some of our, the private practice experience has kind of crept into our academic um, positioning on things. And we're able to do things pretty safely, I would say. I mean, we still do a fair number of general anesthetics in our GI lab, but um, a lot of those tend to be like inpatients who are sicker, um, but it's actually very unique, I'm told from my GI colleagues, in terms of our efficiency and our setup and the numbers and the fact that we're doing so many NACs, that a lot of their GI colleagues across the country are a little bit envious as well. Mm. Interesting. So let's let's um, kind of give a global, a few definitions for folks. So what when we say Nora, um, as I said, we're talking about non-Nora anesthesia, and what does that include? You mentioned the GI suite, so that's like an endoscopy suite, doing colonoscopies, endoscopies, ERCPs. 
Um, what else falls under the umbrella of Nora? Sure, sure. So um, like you mentioned earlier, so Nora's non-operating room anesthesia, it basically includes just that. A- anywhere else outside of the operating room that you're asked to give anesthesia. So at our institution, we are staffing up to 15 Nora um, locations a day. Obviously, just like much of the rest of the country, the busiest uh, and most bustling is the GI center. But, you know, there's so many other places that we're asked to go. You know, interventional radiology is another one um, where we do cases, you know, for the neurointerventionalists. Um, we do CT cases. We go to the bronchoscopy suite. Um, we're asked to provide anesthesia for MRI patients. Um, you know, then there's all the cardiac things. So cardiac cath lab for TAVRs and mitral clips and things like that. Uh, the electrophysiology lab. Um, we also do ECTs daily in our PACU. So that counts as NORA. Um, and then we also have a very bustling um, fertility center that is kind of like an office-based anesthesia setting. So anything office-based anesthesia is obviously NORA as well. Um, and I know there are people who make careers out of going to um, different offices and providing anesthesia services as well. So it's very broad, very all-encompassing, all different types of cases, all different types of anesthetics. Um, it's definitely a wide spectrum. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, you know, I think most people, even even now, graduate residency having done some, Nora, but not a lot. And certainly, I remember as a resident feeling very, uh, like, uncomfortable with it. You know, it's different. It's, uh, you know, you, you don't really know. I mean, especially things like MRI, where it's the equipment is different because it has to be MRI compatible. And often you're outside this room and you've got these long, you know, connector various lengths of tubing going under the doorway. And, you know, it's just, I think people tend to not be anywhere near as comfortable with it when they finish training as they are uh, with regular OR anesthesia. So let's talk about what the differences are. And, and when you think, okay, if you're training, let's say a new faculty member, or, you know, you have a resident who's saying, I want to learn more about how to do Nora well, what do you tell them? What are the key differences that people need to be aware of and prepare for? And maybe we could go, you know, first pre-op and then intra-op and then post-op. So when you think pre-operatively, what is different? What do you keep in mind um, when you are in that realm? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things. Um, so first of all, you have to be prepared. Um, you have to know exactly what case you're doing. And like you alluded to the MRI, you have to realize that you can't just go in and do your case normally, that you do need the extra tubing and things like that. Um, you know, it takes a lot of forethought and preparation even before you actually even meet your patient of just where you have to go, what you have to take there. So all of you, the logistics of do you, can you take an anesthesia ventilator there or not? Can you take a cart? Um, you know, what medications you need to take? Cause you're going to be away from your OR hub. So you have to be prepared. Um, you know, and emergencies, while pretty rare, can be difficult to manage in, in that Nora setting because we are uncomfortable. We're outside of our comfort zone and there's not as much staff and people around that can help us. Um, the other thing I tell people um, is, you know, there obviously, you know, per ASA guidelines, there are certain minimum requirements before we provide anesthesia anywhere. So you do have to you know, really take it upon yourself to make sure that those things are there. You know, for example, suction being one of the main ones that a lot of people in the procedure suite do not think about, but it's absolutely absolutely essential for us as anesthesiologists. 
So a lot of times we have to figure out, you know, can they bring us in one of those little suction things that are have the separate machine? Because um, it may not be in the wall like we're used to in the operating room. Um, you know, so we definitely have to think about all of that type of stuff. For, for a preoperative, another piece of it is a lot of these patients um, may not have a preoperative evaluation, yet they're old and they're sick. Um, but they're not going to be seen by the preoperative clinic necessarily. I mean, that being said, there are steps being taken all across the country, I'm sure, to get some of these moments, some more complex of these patients seen. But just the nature of how these patients are booked, a lot of times the proceduralist themselves has not met this patient. They were referred from another hospital to come to whatever institution you're at in order to have this advanced treatment or advanced care. Um, so that optimization piece that we're so used to seeing may not be there. And I hear, this is where I feel like private practice really helped um, train me for Nora is a lot of times even our OR patients weren't necessarily gone, hadn't gone through like a proper preoperative evaluation. So we got really good or you get really good at looking through things quickly in terms of the patient chart and, and doing a pretty detailed yet quick physical exam, history taking, um, and deciding mentally is, is this patient optimized or are they not optimized? Um, and Nora is very similar where you may not have all that information at your disposal. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I joke obviously, you know, with the, with the radiologist, I don't really expect them to know too much about in terms of, you know, the patient's, I mean, I want them to know about the patient's medical history, but, um, I usually give the GI doctors or the cardiologists a little bit of a harder time if there was something, you know, in the patient's history that they missed. I always joke with them, like, are you sure you did internal medicine residency first? <laughs> uh, like, why am I the one that's catching this? But, um, but yeah, so those are key elements, I think, that are going to be different than the patient that you typically see in the OR from a pre-op standpoint. Um, the other thing, sorry, uh, you know, to bring up is you also have to from, from that preparation piece, kind of check out the room that you're going to be in. Um, you'll have to know, is there scavenging available? If, if they're not, if you're going to do a general anesthetic, does it have to be a TIVA then if there's no scavenging? Um, some sites may not even allow for an anesthesia machine or ventilator. Like, for example, that fertility clinic I mentioned where we're doing, um, you know, pretty pretty deep max on, on these patients. Um but you don't have a ventilator there. So you have just an ambu bag. So if you get into trouble, it's just you by yourself with an ambu bag. Um, so you definitely need to be aware of what your surroundings are going to be and then be prepared. I would say those are the big things. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, I think, and, and really rings true. Um, do you feel like there, if you had to say the minimum, so you mentioned suction, you, you wouldn't, I think, do any anesthetic without suction. Another um, you mentioned is at, the, at a, an ambu bag. So you would want at the very least to have an ambu bag. Um, right, right. So yeah, uh, so, I mean, no, go, go ahead. No, Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm, oh, so tell me what else, what are the minimum things that you wouldn't do an anesthetic without, even if it was, you know, Mac in a, in a, uh, out in an office setting? Exactly. So, um, you know, ASA has great guidelines on NORA cases and what should be available at a minimum. I think they were just updated a couple of years ago. So, you mean, you definitely need a reliable oxygen source, um, ideally through a pipeline, but if not, at least a full canister. Um, you need reliable suction. You definitely need monitors and ambu bag. 
Um, and then you should have access to an emergency cart with a defibrillator and emergency drugs. Um, there are staff in the procedural areas, and this is what people um, don't commonly think of, at least these procedural areas when they're booking these cases with the anesthesia, is the staff should be trained to be able to assist us if needed. Um, you know, there is a little, going to be a little bit of a learning curve for their staff if they're not used to it. Like they may not realize that they need to stand next to you or be around when you're intubating someone, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, so you definitely need a staff who are, who are available. Um, and then you also should have some reliable way to request assistance if needed. So either the coordinator's phone number or some way to get hold of help if you need it at one of these offsite locations. And then finally, there needs to be appropriate post-anesthesia care management set up. So where is that patient going to recover and by whom? So I say those are the basic elements of what you need. Great. All right. And then what about the the things that kind of very most important or most necessary things to focus on if a patient, as you mentioned, may not have a preoperative assessment. You may be seeing them right before taking them to do, to do the Nora um, anesthetic. Do you, what I think of is, you know, and I guess this would apply whether it's going to the OR without a preoperative assessment or a, a Nora site, but I think, you know, I would absolutely want to make sure to ask about exercise tolerance, cardiac uh, and respiratory issues, comorbidities. Um, are there other things you think, oh man, if I only have a few minutes, I have to ask about this? Yeah. So, I mean, so I focus um, pretty heavily on the exercise in the absence of a pre-op evaluation on the exercise tolerance, um, like you're mentioning, like their ADLs or how much are they able to do on their own. Um, you know, the other other sometimes forgotten one in, in neurocytes until you at least train the procedural area to, to get very familiar in asking this is NPO status. Um, you know, for a while there, we were running into trouble with some of these neurocytes telling patients they could still have breakfast in the morning when yeah. they couldn't. So, you know, just little things like that that you take for granted in the operating room um, as being asked and, you know, obviously a, a pre-op nurse would call you if a patient had breakfast. These procedural sites may not be as aware with what our guidelines are. So we really have to take it upon ourselves to train them um, and then, you know, quickly ask ourselves as well. Right. All right. Great. So let's move to the intra-op portion. So what is different about, uh, and some some of this is obviously going to overlap. For example, if you end up having to intubate a patient and you don't have a ventilator, then you're going to be doing it by hand. <laughs> but right. what what do you think of as, as differences um, when it comes to the intra-op uh, portion of the anesthetic? Um, so one of the key things I would say would be a lot of times we're not familiar with the procedures ourselves as well. So communication is is going to be key. I mean, communication between anesthesia and the surgeon or the OR nurses is always key, regardless of where you are, whether it's the operating room or NORA. But I would say NORA sites, communication is even more key because we really, a lot of times, don't have any idea what they're doing, what the pictures are that they're looking at. Um, you know, we can't just lean over the drape and realize, oh, they're on fashion now. I should be trying to, you know, turning off some of my gases and things like that. So communication is going to be key. Um, you know, just ask them to give you warnings or let you let you know if they're going to do something that might stimulate the patient, um, just so that there is that open two-way communication. Um, you know, you're definitely, I would say in most Nora locations, going to be in much more cramped quarters than you are in the operating room. So one thing I always tell my residents is, you know, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable 
and it sounds weird, but, but that's kind of what Nora is. You're, you're not going to be comfortable as much as you try and change things and make it better. It's never going to be the operating room. So um, you kind of have to go into it with that mindset. Um, the other things to consider is like, how offsite are you going to be? Um, you know, not every case that can be done in a neural location should be done in a neural location. I mean, sometimes there might be some patient factors that, you know, it may not be safe to do them. For example, back to that fertility clinic example where we really are on our own with just the ambulag, you know, we may not want to do a BMI 45 patient over there. Um, you know, you may not want to do anyone with like significant cardiopulmonary symptoms in place. So is there, is there another mechanism where that case can be moved to a more appropriate setting, such as the operating room? And, and luckily, we have that available, but those are all things that you want to think about as well as part of the intraoperative piece as well. You know, with this larger patient with a larger BMI, do I really want to be struggling through a deep NAC at this total office-based location away from everybody else? And the answer for most of us would be no. Um, so we want to make sure that what we do is as safe as possible. And so once you get used to that being uncomfortable, I would say in terms of the anesthesia itself and monitoring the patient, all of that is pretty similar. Um, but you are going to be in tight quarters. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine it's probably more likely, certainly I would guess in a private practice, but, but even maybe in an academic center that you may be just physically more removed from, you mentioned help, but I'm also even thinking about things like breaks, right? I mean, it might be more challenging to get a, even a simple bathroom break. Is that something that comes up? Um, yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, it came up more for me personally when I was in private practice, obviously, um, where it really was every, every person on their own. But um, yes, yeah, definitely when you are physically more removed, it, it is difficult to get breaks. You learn to become more efficient with your time as well. The other piece I should mention with, uh, with the whole intra-op piece of Nora is a lot of Nora, a lot of these Nora types use a lot of radiation. So that's another piece that, you know, it, it could be a whole separate topic, but that's another piece for anyone who is going to be doing anesthesia at a Nora site to be aware of and be cognizant of. Um, and a lot of times these doses are much higher than what we would see in the operating room. So you really have to take it upon yourself to protect yourself as well. Um, and then like I was alluding to earlier, that communication is key. There may be certain bursts of pictures that they take might be very high radiation. You don't want to be fiddling around with the blood pressure cuff at that time right next to the patient. A lot of times the proceduralists are so focused on what they're doing, they don't even see you standing there. So they may not be the ones to warn you. So, you know, keeping that open line of communication and, and kind of just asking them those types of questions or to let you know um, is also good for your own safety as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You also mentioned that you're doing a lot of max um, and presumably, you know, that's just going to be a higher general percentage than it would be if you were uh, doing, you know, cases in the operating room. When we say MAC, we mean monitored anesthesia care. It's interesting because I think, you know, here we used to think of our uh, colonoscopies and, endosc and upper endoscopies, EGDs, as being done uh, with MAC. And we actually redefined that. We actually realized that they were so such deep MACs that they actually were general anesthetics because the actual definition, right, of a MAC is you should be responsive to, to voice uh, and certainly to, to stimulation. 
Um, but we, <laughs> that's often not the case, right? We often have people who are breathing, maybe occasionally need a jaw thrust, but they're certainly not, you know, following commands by any stretch of the imagination. Um, is that when, 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 if you're doing a Mac, is it kind of a really a deep Mac like that, that may even be bordering on a general anesthetic or is it truly a Mac with someone who's pretty responsive? Yeah. You know, so, um, you're absolutely correct. A lot of these Macs in these neural locations are, are deep Macs and that's just what's needed in order to, um, safely perform the procedure that needs to be done, you know, and then you get into the, the conundrum, well, should I just put in a, an ET tube and, and it means a general either way, but one, one has a security airway, one does not. Um, so whatever we do, we have to do it with patient safety in mind, obviously. You know, there are other NORA cases that are lighter max, like, for example, our ALS patients in radiology where we're putting in a feeding tube. We're giving them very minimal anesthesia for, for those patients who have, like, zero pulmonary reserve. So, I mean, there there is a subset of... Um, of cases which are not a heavy Mac, like we described, but I would say a lot of our, yeah, GI Macs, um, not so much the colonoscopies, I feel like colonoscopies, you, could, you can do a little bit of a lighter Mac, but definitely the upper scopes or the ERCPs that are being done as a Mac are, um, are definitely deeper Macs. Um, you know, we, we've established a pretty good relationship with our GI colleagues where um, they are very quick to agree with us if we feel someone would be better served with a with a true general anesthetic with the ET tube versus um, a Mac, and you know we don't really get any pushback from them at all. Um, and sometimes it's actually occurred where it's been them telling us, "Can you do a general for this patient because we don't think they're going to tolerate a Mac?" Um, so we have that that open two way discussion with them as well. But but you're absolutely right. A lot of these are deeper Macs. Yeah. And so do you have any tips for folks? Uh, obviously, you guys are doing a lot of Macs. Uh, you know, I think uh, at first blush, it might seem like a Mac is easier to do a, an anesthetic than a general anesthetic because of the fact that it's quote unquote lighter. But I actually think that Macs are significantly more difficult than a general anesthetic. Um, you don't, as you said, you often usually don't have a secure airway. You, you know, are, are kind of back and forth between depth, uh, airing on the side of too deep or too light and having to worry about a potential obstructed airway. So uh, are there tips that you um, give to trainees or, or new faculty that you say, here's, this is what to keep in mind when you're doing all these Macs? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so what I always tell my residents is a Mac is actually more work. Um, right. So, so don't go into it thinking that Mac is easier because it's not. It's, you're going to be I expect you to be at the head of the bed, you know, watching the patient's airway the whole time if you're doing a MAC. Um, charting can wait. So MACs are definitely much more challenging. Um, you know, the tips I give, I give um, new faculty or, um, or the residents is, and I know I sound redundant, is, is that whole communication piece. You know, if you're concerned about a MAC versus a GA on, on somebody, you know, just talk to the, the other team members and see, you know, what their rationale is or what they're actually going to be doing, um, you know, in terms of of actually providing the anesthesia on the MAC. Um, you know, a lot of times I feel like people get into trouble when they start doing a lot of polypharmacy all at once, all at the same time. So, you know, if, if you're going to add in medications, give them time to work. It's it's not like it's a magic wand where you can just, you know, 
push a bunch of different agents and then just wait, I mean, you are going to get in trouble that way. Um, so try and minimize a lot of different agents all given in quick succession from each other. Um, you know, for young, healthy patients, which is not, you know, some of Nora is old and sick, but some can be young and healthy as well. You know, they may not need a lot of extra things besides the propofol. Um, so kind of, you know, I, I was skeptical as well myself, but in private practice, I, I changed some of my practice for like routine, routine colonoscopies and EGDs and was just doing straight propofol and it worked really well. Um, so patients may not need every single medication we have at our arsenal. So just kind of be judicious and cautious in your use. Um, you know, and then some of it is like, I, like we were talking about earlier is what is a true definition of a MAC. Um, some of it is going to be educating the proceduralists as well. I mean, if they really don't want the patient to move at all, then maybe it's not a MAC that they want. Maybe it is a true general anesthetic. So, um, you know, for them, they may actually prefer you do a general with the ET tube, even though it slows down their turnover time because it'll allow them to actually do their procedure much faster rather than struggling through a patient who's moving or restless. Um, you know, it may actually work out in their, in their favor to do it that way as well. Right. That's a good point. And, you know, I think that's, that is a good segue. You mentioned kind of turnover time. So the other thing we don't think a lot about in the OR with a long case, who's going to the PACU or certainly the ICU, we don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about how, how fast will this patient, you know, recover? They're going to the PACU and they can spend hours there. But in, in an outpatient setting and certainly in a, a non-OR setting, I think we think a lot more about that. So how do you, you mentioned that you tailor your anesthetic a little bit, trying to, to be judicious with using kind of adjuncts that if you can get away with just propofol, you do that, you know, uh, avoiding a whole lot of other things. Um, so you're keeping in, your mind on the the need for a relatively rapid recovery, um, other than kind of trying to be judicious with the use of opioids, benzos, um, you know, do you, is, are there any other things that you do to kind of set yourself up for a, a good post-operative course? Um, you know, we preemptively for, for some of our patient populations will preemptively give them, um, anti-nausea prophylaxis just because we were running into this issue where patients, you know, you only have a certain number of recovery bays. A lot of these neural locations, you know, as you get busier, you know, if a patient is still nauseous and is just not moving, um, very quickly, it just creates a backlog conundrum. So we started prophylactically giving some, for example, like our fertility patients who may, you know, these women on all these hormones are at an increased risk for nausea. And even though we're doing a MAC for them and shouldn't, they, our anesthetic itself may not make them nauseous, but just based on the fact that they've had all these hormones and things, they're definitely a higher risk population. So we've um, changed our practice a little bit. Our procedural colleagues have started giving all the patients, um, Zofran on arrival and some um, PO Tylenol as well um, the morning of before they come in. So to try and help kind of smooth things out a little bit, um, keeping in mind that whole recovery piece. Yes. So, you know, we finish our procedure, they go straight into like a phase two recovery um, and tr kind of keeping things moving. So that definitely there is some thought into that um, as well. I, I know like some of our um, GI colleagues are experimenting with, um, you know, fluid, like a more fluid restrictive strategy in more in terms of their conscious sedation patients who they're also seeing the same sort of struggle um, 
but obviously they're conscious sedation patients get a ton of uh, opioid and benzo. So it's no uh, wonder that they struggle with getting them out the door. But um, there's all different strategies kind of at play to get patients recovered and out of the hospital much faster. Yeah. So it definitely antiemetics sounds like a really important strategy. And then again, I think propofol is one of those things that you know, it tends to be pretty smooth recovery relatively fast, at least if it's a relatively short procedure. Um, when you start mixing in opioids, you deal with potential nausea and vomiting from that and other side effects of opioids. Benzos, while, you know, potentially helpful for someone who's very anxious, can, you know, have a little bit of a longer effect as well. So if you can get away with just propofol, it seems like that's a pretty good way to go. Um, is uh, the, when you're, when you're now moving into the post-operative phase, um, hopefully you've set yourself up well. Uh, are there other um, things you think differ or that you want people to keep in mind in postoperatively when they're in a Nora setting compared to a traditional OR setting? Yeah, so um, so definitely, you know, we have to keep that recovery piece in mind. If you do do a general endotracheal anesthetic, um, where is that patient going to recover? Um, you know, are you going to take them to the main PACU? How far is that from where you are? Do you have help and support in getting you there? Do you need monitors? Do you need oxygen? So all of those things have to kind of um, be kept in mind as well. Um, or does your site, wherever you are providing the, the anesthesia, the neural location, do they have the capability to do phase one recovery? Um, I would say most places don't, but some may. Um, but or are you prepared to do their phase one recovery yourself as well that, you know, if the PACU was full or, or whatnot. So always kind of keep, you have to set up a system and make sure you know what it is and have that in the back of your mind. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, in terms of safety of doing Nora, I know if you look through the literature, there's a lot, there's not actually a huge amount written about Nora itself, but there seems to be a lot of focus on is, is it safe to do anesthesia in Nora locations? And initially like the older Older information would kind of question the safety of it, but kind of more newer analysis, you know, I, I looked at something from 2017 and it'll, it'll be with the references, but when they looked at um, anesthesia closed claims database analysis from a 12 year period from 2000 to 2012, there were 1900 claims that occurred in that 12 year period and only 72 of them were from NORA locations. So compared to the OR, there definitely were fewer Nora claims, they, but the um, people who examined this, they did notice a couple of things, which I, I did want to mention. Yeah, um, please. So they, so they mentioned that in the Nora, the Nora claims, they seem to be a lot more younger patients, so patients less than 16, um, ASA three to five um, class. The, the math, as we were talking about, was the predominant technique in most of the Nora, um, Nora claims. Um, there was actually in terms of the number of cases of Nora done, a slightly disproportionate number of claims from um, CAT, EP, and or radiology. Um, but by far the most were GI claims, but that's just because we the most uh, Nora cases we all do is in the GI lab. Um, the claims for Nora versus OR, there was a higher proportion of death claims in the Nora setting where 60% of them were death claims, whereas the proportion of a permanent or disabling injuries claims were similar in OR versus NORA. 
Um, and then Nora, there's significantly more adverse respiratory events compared to the operating room. The number one being inadequate oxygenation ventilation. So kind of what we were alluding to, like those deep max, you know, if you're not hypervigilant and paying attention to what's going on, it's easy to get yourself into trouble. So kind of similar to what our initial conversation was, you know, definitely want to be cognizant of that. Um, you know, these patients are going to be at a higher risk for aspiration as well. And aspiration pneumonitis is definitely something that they saw as well. So, you know, you want to do everything possible to um, minimize those, those risks um, during and after the procedure as well. Yeah, great. And I think that's, you know, really interesting to know and to think that there's a lot of ways in which if you're not really careful, these are these can be risky. You don't have all the same support services that you do around you in the operating room. So, in the uh, anything else in terms of um, things you want people to keep in mind in the recovery phase, um, you may I would imagine that you may be playing a larger role um, in terms of recovery, just uh, because there aren't going to be other anesthesiologists around. You probably don't have a pack you resident necessarily you uh you may not have um you know as, as large of a nursing staff so uh, that's one thing is you may be keeping a closer eye on your patients post-op is that do you, do you find that to be true in these settings um we we do definitely um you know obviously our general anesthetic patients recover in our PACU, but um they come back down for phase two recovery um and then the other patients, they just undergo their phase two recovery locally. So we do kind of, you know, swing by, keep an eye on them. A lot of times for our GI cases who have a very deep neck, we actually keep them in the room with us um, for a few extra minutes to make sure that they're actually responsive before we let them go to the phase two recovery that's in GI, just because, yeah, those are not phase one nurses. So they may not be as in tune to airway compromise and things like that. Um, so we definitely do keep a closer eye on them. Um, that being said, they usually recover so quickly, they're also out the door much faster as well. So um, so in the less complex patients, they're, they're moving pretty quickly. Yeah. And do you want to just say a word about the difference between phase one and phase two recovery? Sure. Um, so phase one recovery, um, you know, it's a little more involved is what we would think of as our traditional PACU recovery where our patients go after they undergo general anesthetic, and then there's different elements um, in terms of what the the nurses have to score or keep track of of the patient before they're eligible to move on to phase two recovery. Phase two recovery is what we would traditionally um, think of as, you know, as the recovery for most of our MACs, where the patient becomes is much more responsive, much faster, um, and and things like that. I, you know, I won't go into much more detail besides that kind of basic um, definition, but, um, but yeah, but it's definitely something to think about when you are providing anesthesia at these offsite locations, because a lot of times these offsite locations may not realize themselves that there is a difference in terms of the recovering piece of it. Great. Yeah, that's really, that's helpful. Um, great. All right. So this has been a great overview, I think, of, of the key things. And let me ask you, when you think about, you've already mentioned that there are more and more cases being done in these locations, patients who maybe at one time were thought not to be appropriate for these settings, uh, maybe now getting done, so folks may see sicker patients. Are there other things, when you look to the future, is it kind of continuing those trends? Are there other things you think we'll see in the NORA locations as we move into the future here? 
Yeah, so I think Nora is just only going to grow, and it's growing right now pretty exponentially, and it's only going to continue to grow. Um, patients are only going to get older and sicker, um, and a lot of times they're having the procedure in the Nora site because they're too sick for their operating room. And as we have like more increases in advances in technology and procedures, we're going to see more and more things being done at these Nora, Nora sites. I mean, we, we already see it. Um, you know, for example, some patients with certain like colon tumors, we're, we're actually endoscopically resecting their tumors now, or like a G-pulm for a gastroparetic uh, patient instead of having a surgical intervention in the OR where we're treating their achalasia or their gastroparesis with a pulm procedure um, endoscopically. So it's only going to continue to increase as, their, as the proceduralists kind of increase in their complexity of the cases that they're doing. So we're only going to be asked to provide anesthesia for more and more of these cases. Right now, um, from like a recent literature search, it seems like roughly about one third of of what anesthesiologists are called upon to do or provide anesthesia for is in the Nora setting. Um, and I feel that is only going to increase in the future as well. So I think we're yeah. all going to be doing a lot of Nora, whether we're in private practice or academics. Great. And so really important that people feel comfortable with it, uh, coming out of training and, and in practice. Um, all right. And then if people want to learn more, um, they can obviously check out the references that uh, we'll put in the in the show notes. Uh, there's also a Society for Ambulatory Anesthesia, right, that um, includes Nora? There is, yes. So they can definitely um, get in touch with them as well. Um, there's a lot of great information out there. And, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing more Nora literature in the future as well, because it, it is a, it's not just a trend, it's something that's here to stay and is just increasing in complexity and numbers. So there will be a lot of information out there. Great. Well, Yasmin, thank you for going over this in such great detail. Um, I think this will be really useful for folks. Why don't we turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations for the audience? Do you have something that you have uh, thought of to recommend, something that's kept you busy during uh, this time of COVID that you would recommend to the audience? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I never had much time to watch TV. My, my husband's a huge, like, TV watcher, and I never was, but I've been trying to spend more time with him, and obviously there's not much to do on the weekends now anymore. Um, so we have made our way through quite a few series, actually. We watched all of Homeland. We watched, uh, we're in the middle of the second season of The Americans now. Um, but lately, we've discovered um, these limited series, on Netflix, and we just watched one recently, which was quite good, The Queen's Gambit. Um, it's about a young lady who's had a pretty tragic upbringing, um, and she has some addiction issues, and it's her quest to become the world's best chess player. Um, you know, it actually forced us to dust off our chessboard and try and teach the kids how to play chess. Um, you know, I consistently lose to my seven-year-old in chess, but I think that's more a testament to how bad I am and not how good he is, but I won't tell him that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, um, I have not watched the queen's gambit, but, uh, I keep hearing about it. So I definitely have that on my list. Yeah, no, it's excellent. It's, it's really good. Awesome. And we are actually similar to you. We, my wife and I are, I think we actually are now 
we might be on the third season of the Americans, but we're very much enjoying that. We loved Homeland. So you've got, we've got some, some uh, similar tastes. Well, uh, if you have liked those and you, you like Queens Gambit, we'll definitely, that's yet another, another great recommendation for that show. Um, yeah, well, good. I, I, speaking of, um, of, uh, things to keep entertained. And, and actually it, it relates to the, you saying the Queen's Gambit reminded me of Queen B, which, um, and I don't think I've already, I, I'm losing track of what I've already recommended to, to my audience uh, with the episodes I've been recording. But I will say that um, there's a, a really fun word game in the New York times called the spelling bee. And my wife got really into this at first and I had looked at it and I kind of didn't get into it as much, but I, she has since persisted and gotten me totally addicted and it's a fun little word game. It's every day in the New York Times. If you subscribe, you can get it on your app, or um, if you can get, you can actually see it for free um, just by going to NewYorkTimes.com. And what it is is seven letters, six around uh, the edges of a circle, and one in the middle. And you try to make as many words as you can using the. You have to use the middle letter in every word, and then you can use as many or as many times the other uh, letters around the edge as you want. And the le- the words have to be at least four letters long. And then you get points for every word you do. You get more points for longer words. And if you meet certain point thresholds, you get certain kind of ranks, like good start, solid, nice, excellent, amazing, and then genius. And if you keep going beyond genius, it doesn't actually say this on there, but it's like a hidden thing, that if you get every single possible word, you get queen B. And that is uh, that is the kind of ultimate goal. So in, in all our days of doing this, we've only gotten Queen Bee twice, but we, we were very excited about it. So anyway, I recommend it. It's a lot of fun. And even kids, like, I don't know how old your kids are, Yasmin, but I have a nine and a seven-year-old and a two-year-old, but the two-year-old's not doing it. But the nine and the seven-year-old, they they get a kick out of it. We'll put the iPad up on the table in the morning and they'll we won't we won't get any of the, you know, we'll leave it for them and they'll get a bunch of the four four letter words and sometimes more. And then my wife and I'll try to get the more the more difficult ones. So it's a lot of fun. Well, I'll definitely have to check it out. I also have a seven and a nine year old and then my twelve year old as well, who's the big boss in the family. But no, I'll definitely check that out. Sounds like fun. Nice. Awesome. Well, it sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. That is it. Hopefully that was useful. I've had a ton of requests for an episode on Nora. So glad we were able to do it. And uh, Dr. Begg was great. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website. Leave a comment where everyone can learn from what you have to say. That's ACRAC.com. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC, or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons and made donations. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, April Liu, and to our former social media manager who's still helping out, Dr. Kimia Cash Cooley. They are awesome. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Yasmin Begg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. 
Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.